If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We'll be in uh, John chapter 1 again this morning. We were in verses 1 through 5 last week. This morning we'll be in verses 6 through 13. But I'll go ahead and begin reading uh, back again at the beginning of the chapter. So John chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As we began considering this gospel last week, we observed how John declared to us concerning the Word, who was with God and was God in the beginning. This Word is the creator of the world. Life was in him, and he is life, and that life is the light of men. Christ gives light, both in regard to the the light of nature, our consciences, the image of God within us, and also in regard to spiritual light. He himself is the light. And John, having arrived at this idea of the light, he remains there for a while, focusing on this this imagery of Christ as the light. And so as we consider verses 6 through 13 this morning, we'll do so under three main headings. First, the light announced. Secondly, the light rejected. Thirdly, the light received. The light announced, the light rejected, and the light received. And just to cue you off, we'll be spending most of our time actually under point three this morning. So points one and two will go fairly quickly. Most of our time will be spent under point three, the light received. First of all, though, the light announced. And so in verses six through eight, John, our gospel writer, draws our attention to another man named John. There's John the Baptist. John was a man sent from God. The prophets had long foretold that there would be a forerunner who went before the coming of the Messiah in order to prepare the way of the Lord. And so we find in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, a voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth a, in the desert a highway for our God, let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low, let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And as we know, John the Baptist uses this language of Isaiah chapter 40 to refer to himself. As he, uh, we find John's words later on here, even in John chapter 1, he says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as Isaiah the prophet said. And likewise... 
right at the end of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi chapter uh, 4, verses 5 and 6. The Lord announced through him, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so this was, this was God's plan, to send a forerunner, someone to prepare the way of the Lord. And John did that. He came serving as a witness, testifying about the light. The angel Gabriel had foretold what his ministry would be to Zacharias' father in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And he's, uh, he's drawing on, on this language of Malachi chapter 4 that we just heard. And so Gabriel said, He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is John the Baptist. He came to testify about the light. And the purpose of his testimony, John says here, was that all might believe through him. That was his purpose. His purpose in testifying about the light was so that people would be prepared so that when the light came, they would believe through his testimony. Now, obviously, John's ministry was limited in its scope. He preached in the Judean wilderness, and his message was not heard by everyone in the world, even everyone in Judea, necessarily, even in his own time. But for everyone who heard him, it was his goal that they'd repent of their sins, that they would be prepared for the light who was to follow him. The gospel writer, though, is quick to point out that as great as John was, he himself was not the light. Right, and and we we see some some evidence about uh, about this this conversation that takes place later on. And Lord willing, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Here, uh, John chapter one verses nineteen and following. There's there's all this great hubbub and, and bustle. Who is who is John? Is he is he the Christ? What's what's he doing? What is his purpose and his role? The gospel writer points out that John was not the light. He's just a witness pointing towards the light. And so, Lord willing, we'll we'll see this more about John the Baptist here in a couple of weeks. But before we move on, we ought to notice here in the example of John what all preaching and teaching and all witnessing that is truly Christian ought to be. Preaching and teaching and witnessing that is truly Christian is a testimony about the light. It's a testimony about Christ. John did not come to point people toward himself nor to anyone or anything else but to Christ, so that they might believe on Christ through his testimony. And this is what true Christian preaching and true Christian witness must be. It must point the hearer to Christ. Paul put it so well in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 verse 5, when he said, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. True witnessing and true preaching must be about Jesus, so as to direct men and women to him. And I say this not to be reductionistic nor to truncate the message that is preached. Obviously, in bearing witness about the light, John did more than simply say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He said that, but he said more than that as well. He also said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. People don't know that they need the light unless they're convinced that they are in the darkness. And likewise, as we make disciples, we know that Jesus commanded us that we must teach them everything that he has taught us. 
The Apostle Paul described his ministry among the Ephesians uh, and said that it was such that he did not shrink from declaring to them the whole purpose of God. It's Acts 20, verse 27. And so I'm not suggesting that our witnessing or our preaching and our teaching should be only telling people about the life of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection. We can and should bring the full counsel of God to bear in what we say. But what I am saying is that in our witness and in our preaching, we must always be pointing others to Jesus. It's about Him. We must never allow ourselves to slip into moralism, simply telling people to be good, telling people to be nice. We must never slip into modes of thinking uh, found in, in popular psychology. If a sermon could be preached in a synagogue or in a mosque or in an idolatrous temple and win the approval of the crowd that is there, it's not a Christian sermon. Because a Christian sermon needs to be about Christ and must ever point to Christ and bear witness to him, even as John bore witness about the light. And then our gospel writer turns from speaking about the witness, John the Baptist, to speaking about the light, the true light, in verses 9 through 11. And here we find our second point, the light rejected. John describes here how Jesus was rejected. Now, verse 9 is somewhat difficult, and it admits of various interpretations, but I think the idea here is somewhat similar to what we saw back in chapter 1, verse 4, above. The life was the light of men in that in creation the Son of God endowed mankind with rationality and understanding and the image of God and a conscience and so on. And at creation, even the true knowledge of God. That true knowledge, though, was lost in the fall. And even the image of God and our understanding and rationality suffered in the fall. We didn't completely lose all of those things, but they were defaced in the fall of Adam. And so we read here in verse 9, there was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man, or as the King James translates it, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And so the Son of God is the, the creator of all mankind, and in that sense, he enlightens every man that is born into the world. He endows us with the image of God and the capacities for understanding and a conscience and so on. Christ is that light and lightens every man in that way. And then comes verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. And again here, John seems to be revisiting some of what he has already said back in verse 5. And John often has this circular way of writing when he states something and then moves on and then moves back again to what he has already said. You see this especially in the, the letter of 1 John, but sometimes here in the Gospel of John as well. And so John seems to be hearkening back to what he has said in uh, verses 4 and 5 by what he says here in verses 9 and 10. And there seems to be somewhat of a parallelism between them. And so John says here, he was in the world. The idea seems to be that Christ, according to his divine nature, was in the world even prior to his incarnation, prior to being born of Mary into the world. By his divine nature, the Son of God was in the world and upholding all things by the word of his power. He had revealed himself through nature. He had appeared in the, the various uh, theophanies in the, in the Old Testament, those appearances where the angel of the Lord is explicitly called the Lord, as uh, just one example, Judges 13, where the angel of the Lord is called the Lord, and this is the angel that appeared to the, the parents of Samson. 
And so Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was in the world. The world was made through him, but the world didn't know him. The world had, by and large, rejected him. And then comes verse 11, referring to his incarnation and his coming to the Jewish people. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And by and large, isn't that true? Isn't that what we find in the history that is given to us in the four Gospels? That Jesus was rejected by his own people. He was born according to the flesh as a descendant of David, of the nation of Israel, but his people rejected him. And this was so much that even in the events leading up to the crucifixion, when Pilate was trying to release Jesus, the people cried out and said, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And then when Pilate said to them, behold your king, they replied by saying, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. And the chief priests were not alone in this. They had stirred up the crowd to ask for a murderer named Barabbas to be released to them and to have Jesus crucified. So the eternal word had come to his own people, the chosen people, the people of Israel, into the nation into which he was born according to the flesh. And his own did not receive him. But, as verses 12 and 13 remind us, this rejection, though widespread, was not universal. And this brings us to our third point this morning, which is the light received. And again, we'll be spending most of our time here. There were some who did receive the light. And what may be said of them? Verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And those who did believe, therefore became children of God. They became children not by hereditary right, nor by any human contrivance, nor by their own desire, nor by the desire of anyone else. They became the children of God because they were born of God. And notice here in verses 12 and 13 the literary threads that John brings together. John describes here those who had believed in Christ. That was the result for which John the Baptist had come. He came as a witness to testify about the light that all might believe through him. And though by and large many did not, many rejected him, as we saw in verses 9 through 11, some did. Some did believe, as we see in verses 12 and 13. And in addition to that, notice here in verse 13 that John brings up this theme, this theme of being born of God, which he will later on in chapter 3 expound upon as he shows us this visit that Jesus has from Nicodemus at night. Jesus explains to Nicodemus the new birth, being born again, being born of the Spirit. And, but beyond the literary niceties of this, the doctrine that's contained in verses 12 and 13 is rich and life-giving. And we would do well to stop and to drink deeply from it. Now most of what John has told us about mankind up to this point is relatively dark. So up in verse 5, he said that the darkness did not comprehend the light. Verse 10, the world did not know him. Verse 11, his own did not receive him. It's a pretty bleak picture of what's going on in the world. Mankind as a whole had rejected the light. The Jewish nation specifically, by and large, had rejected him who was their promised king and Messiah. But there were some who did receive the light, who did believe in his name. And those who did receive the right 
to become the children of God. And they became such because they were actually born of God. Now let's, let's unpack this a little bit. To receive the light is to accept Jesus Christ. To receive the light, to accept Jesus Christ, is to believe on his name. To believe on his name is to trust in him, in his person, who he is, and what he has done for us. To believe in his name is to trust his character, his attributes, to trust in his works that he has accomplished for us. Now, what is the character of Christ? What is the character of the Son of God? What are his attributes? Well, to start with, let's start where this gospel has already started, that the Son of God is the eternal Word of God. He's eternal God and yet distinct from God the Father. Being, is, being God, he has the attributes of God. He's the Creator. He is infinite. He is incomprehensible. He does not change, which is to say he is immutable. He possesses life in himself. He possesses all knowledge and all wisdom. He is the only wise God. He possesses all power, which is to say he is omnipotent. He possesses all holiness, all goodness. He is abundant in loving kindness and faithfulness. He is most gracious and merciful. He is perfectly righteous. He is the blessed and glorious God. And in coming into the world, he condescended to take upon himself a true human nature in the womb of the Blessed Mary. He became like unto us in all things except sin. And so Paul says in Philippians 2, 6, and 7 that although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The Son of God emptied himself, not by ridding himself of his divine nature, for that was impossible. Rather, the Son of God emptied himself by becoming a man, by taking unto himself a true human body and soul. Christ became mortal subject to death. And he did that to make us immortal, to give us eternal life. And though it might seem shocking or perhaps irreverent to say that the eternal word who has life in himself and is the light of men became subject to death, it would be even more irreverent not to say it because that is what happened in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's divine nature is certainly immortal. But his human nature was mortal. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, submitted himself to God the Father's plan for the redemption of mankind. And in offering himself up on the cross, he became the offering for our sins. He became the atoning sacrifice, pleasing to God. He is therefore the Passover lamb the one who was slain so that the, the, the destroying power of God's wrath will be turned away and pass over all who place their faith in Christ, all who place themselves, as it were, under his blood. And then being raised again from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father, Jesus is now our advocate, our mediator, our high priest. And so we find those wonderful words of Hebrews 7, 24 and 25, that Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. And therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And as that passage in Hebrews 7 continues, it tells us that it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, 
innocent, undefiled, exalted above the heavens, separated from sinners, who does not need daily, like those high priests, those ones in the Old Testament time, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. To believe these things about Jesus Christ, to believe that they are true, to agree with the facts, and to trust in the person of whom these things are true for forgiveness and salvation. This is what it means to believe upon his name. It's to have a certain knowledge of these truths and a trusting apprehension of Christ and his saving grace that are offered to us in the gospel. This is what it means to receive Christ and to believe in his name. And and what is said then here? concerning those who did receive him and who did believe in his name. We read here that to them he gave the right to become children of God. He has granted us this right, this privilege to become children of God, to be adopted into the family of God. We're welcomed in. Up to that moment we had been the enemies of God, but God in his grace welcomes us to himself as his children, and he does that on account of his beloved Son. God the Father becomes our Father. Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, becomes our elder brother. We become joint heirs with him. We receive the the spirit of adoption within us by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit testifies within us that we are the children of God, as we find in Romans 8.16. And Paul summarized this all so well in Galatians 4, 4-7. When he said, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is that right that Christ confers upon those who receive him. We're redeemed from our sins, we're adopted into the family of God, and now we call God our Father. And we can depend upon God for all of the blessings and all of the benefits which we need. Now, earthly fathers, as we all know, are of variable qualities. Some earthly fathers are good and helpful. Some earthly fathers are evil and malicious, and many fall somewhere in between on the scale of things. But I want you to understand that having God as your father is to have the best father of all. He's the father who will never sin against you because he is incapable of sinning. He is the father who gives what is good to those who ask him. Though he disciplines us for our good, he is the father who will always forgive his adopted children. He's the father who gives us good instruction, guides us in the paths of righteousness, He's the Father who will never leave us nor forsake us. He's the Father upon whom we can always depend. He's the Father upon whom we can and should cast all of our cares because He cares for us. He's the Father who bears with the weakness of His children. He bears with them with compassion, even as we do with our own children. And God does this so much better than we do. We read in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. 
He's mindful that we are but dust. God is the Father who gives more, who loves more, who forgives more, who shows more patience, more kindness, more grace, more mercy than any earthly father we can imagine. And on top of that, he is the Father who has all power and is therefore overruling all things for our good. This means that nothing can separate his children from his love. He's the Father who knows all of our secret sins, great and small, and yet forgives and justifies us. He is the Father who is for his children. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 31 and following. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Christ Jesus who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, also intercedes for us. And when the time is right, God our Father takes us home to be with him forever. When a father is good, his children love to be with him. What a blessing it will be to be forever with our Heavenly Father and to rejoice in worshiping Him. Now those of us who have had the best of earthly fathers have only seen but a pale reflection of what it is like to have God as your father. To receive this right of becoming the children of God is a bigger blessing than anything that you or I can imagine. We know and say these things about what it means to have God as our Father and to be His adopted children. But we don't fully understand the true weight of these words. Being adopted as a child of God is more wonderful than any of us know. It's, not, uh, it's no wonder then that John said, as we read together in First John, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us. We should be called the children of God. And this is what we are. And so, if this adoption is greater than anything that we can imagine, it must be a very valuable thing indeed. So how do we get it? How do we receive this right? Well, notice what John says here. The adoption is for those who received him, who received Christ, for those who believed on his name. We gain this adoption by faith. And John also describes this adoption in terms of the new birth, in terms of being born of God. Now, John is very clear that we do not receive this by human effort or by anything that is physical and earthly. Those who become the children of God, he says, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who receive this adoption are those who are born again, who are born of the Spirit. Our human ancestry does not grant us this privilege. We do not attain to it even by the exercise of our minds and wills. It is beyond us to attain it for ourselves. Rather, those who receive this blessing of adoption receive it through faith, receive it through the new birth. It is those who receive Christ, who believe in his name, who receive this adoption. And all who receive it are born of God. And so it is by God's gracious gift and God's gracious gift alone that we receive this right. All who believe upon the name of Christ receive it, and all who believe upon the name of Christ are born again. Now, none of us can make ourselves be born, neither can any of us make ourselves be born again. We can't give ourselves the gift of saving faith. Saving faith is the gift of God, which flows from the new birth. Saving faith flows from being born again, 
from our regeneration. And so as we say in our church confession of faith, in the article of grace in regeneration, we believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated or born again. That regeneration consists in giving a holy disposition to the mind that it is affected in a manner above our comprehension by the power of the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel and that its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. This new birth, or this being born of God, is brought about by the working of the Holy Spirit, and it comes in a way that we can't fully understand. And it happens in connection with divine truth. If you were with us in our family catechism time a few weeks ago, we considered this very thing, the connection between saving faith and the source of saving faith. The catechism question asked, what is the source of saving faith? And the answer was, it does not come from our own understanding or strength, but rather from the Holy Ghost, through whom the preaching of the gospel works and accomplishes. This saving faith comes from the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit works through the Word of God. And so we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Born again, and the seed is the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is grass, and all glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word which was preached to you. Believers are those who have been born again through this living and enduring word which was proclaimed to them. Likewise, Paul says in Romans 10, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So faith comes from hearing hearing by the word of Christ. So friend, if you want to have God as your father, then listen to his word. Put yourself under the preaching of his word. His word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And his word gives life. It is by the word, through the word, that the spirit works to bring life, to bring this new birth so that we might trust in Christ and receive him and receive this adoption into the family of God. It is by the word of God that the truth of Jesus is conveyed to us. It is by the word of God that the truth about ourselves is conveyed to us. It's by the word of God that the way of salvation is made known to us. And the Holy Spirit works in connection with that truth to bring us to saving faith. And that faith is given to us by God when we are born again. And so friend, if you want God, to be your father, you must have faith. If you want faith, you must be born again. If you want to be born again, you need to understand you cannot bring it about yourself. This is something God alone can do and does. And so listen to his word, because faith comes by hearing. The new birth comes through the living and enduring word of God. And so listen to it. Believe it. Look to Jesus as he is presented and offered to you in the word of God. And repent of your sins and trust in him. And come to him. He will give you rest. And if you're here this morning and you have more questions about what this means to, to trust in Jesus and to be born again, you can come talk to me or you can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We would love to tell you more about what it means to be born again, what it means to receive Christ, to believe in Him. And I know that many of you have, have already done this very thing. 
You've received Christ. You've believed upon his name. You've been born of God and given this right of being a child of God. So my brother, my sister, if that is you, then rejoice this morning in the Lord and give all praise and glory to him. Give glory to the Father who has planned such a great salvation and who has adopted you into his family as his child. Give praise to the Holy Spirit who has convicted your heart and your mind of your sins and of the truth about Jesus and has converted your soul and given you this new life. And give praise to Jesus Christ, the eternal word who came into the world, who was despised and rejected of men, but yet has become the chief cornerstone by the mystery of his incarnation and his nativity among us and by his baptism and fasting and temptation, by his agony and bloody sweat and by his cross and passion and his death and burial and his resurrection and ascension, Christ has delivered us from sin and death and from the kingdom of Satan. By these things he has won for us a righteousness which is freely given to us, all of grace. It took his life and death and resurrection to give us this right to become children of God. But Christ did this freely in love for us. So let's give glory to Jesus Christ and let's live as those who are joint heirs with him. Let's pray.